Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello, Jan. And I've got Anita in the studio. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So we're all here. That's great. Look, we're at the beginning of the program, but I'm going to talk about the end, the real end, death. Have you spoken with your friends and family about what you would like to happen when you die? Are there secrets that you will take to your grave? Would these secrets be exposed if you died suddenly? Well, Marion Halligan has written about this happening in her book, Goodbye, sweetheart. Okay, Marion, who died unexpectedly? Well, a man called William, who'd had three wives and who had a mistress and had a number of children, three children, one by each wife. And, of course, what I think people don't realise is what an absolute loss of control this is. So many people are kind of control freaks and they make their lives work exactly how they want them to. And then, of course, they die and they can't do it anymore. Uh, Yes, absolutely. So who were William Cecil's wives? Well, there was Neris who left him to become an orange person. (laughs) Um, There was Helen whom he left in order to run off with Lynette. Now, a quote from the book here, her beloved husband had left her for an older woman. Mm, That was very upsetting. And Helen was a cool catalogue of births, deaths and marriages and enough anguish for half a dozen 19th century novels. (laughs) Good one. Yes, yes. And the third wife, the one that he was still married to. Yes. Now, of course, when she when he dies, she's heartbroken. But then when she finds out he was unfaithful to her, she does think, well, I was his third wife. I should have known that he was perhaps not the most faithful of husbands. But still, it comes as a shock because I think third wives think this time he's getting it right. Right. <laughs> well, as in the book, this new chapter starts... The mistress is waiting for her lover. (laughs) Very good start there. And uh, we don't really know what the etiquette of a mistress is for her lover's death. Yes, it's it's quite an interesting situation, isn't it? Um, What does Barbara do? Well... She goes and sees the wife, yes. is what she goes and does eventually, which is a slightly strange thing to do, and she doesn't know why she's doing it. And the wife's not terribly impressed either, um, because, um, and the mistress says, well, of course, William didn't believe in telling lies, and the wife says, what rubbish. Um, he lied by omission all the time. And, of course, we often don't think about that. Just because people don't sort of barefacedly lie to us, if they're not telling us all sorts of truths that are lurking about, well, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> um, there are certain ceremonies that we attach with death. But then you've thrown in this wonderful character called Acacia. Oh, yes. She's Neri's new partner. She's a funeral celebrant. 
Yes. So what new wave of spiritual fashioning is she suggesting? Well, she she thinks that you should have a, a death style as you have a lifestyle. <laughs> and she teaches um, adult education classes in having a good death, which is a quite interesting sort of thing. I didn't make any of this up, you know. You might think that I did. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> I got it all off the net and things. <sighs> um, people who actually do this kind of thing. And, of course, I'm quite sympathetic to some of it. They believe in burying you in cardboard coffins. Mm-hmm. And if um, if there are some young people around, they decorate it, which I think is a rather nice idea. They draw pictures all over the cardboard for you, and um, they usually put you underneath trees, and they don't put a headstone. You have a GPS to show where you are. But Acacia's idea is that you should think about death, and I'm rather inclined to mm-hmm. agree with her. We, we're inclined to leave it aside, and if somebody dies, we say, never mind, you'll get over it. And, of course, you don't, and you realise that when somebody dies, you actually don't want to get over it. it it's your grief. You've worked hard for this grief. You're jolly well going to... Um, it's going it's going to change it's going to mitigate um it's it's going to become a different thing but you're never going to get over it really well you do have a a, a quote at the back of the book um the joy of grief the gift of sorrow which without love you could never know and it's rather it it is rather true isn't it i'm i'm very conscious of that that the only people who save themselves from grief and sorrow are the people who never love anybody and of course you don't realize that but the the interesting thing um the marriage service the old prayer book marriage service does um, in sickness and in health till death us do part. And, of course, the great thing is if you do have a long and ha- happy marriage, the absolute certainty is that one of you will bury the other. Yes, but now we have Lynette who refuses to have a funeral for <laughs> William. Yes. How important is the final resting place? Well, I think that funerals are very important. I think you need those ceremonies. Because without ceremonies, well, I mean, societies have always had them. They might put you up in a tree or (laughs) they might put you up for the vultures to eat, but that's a kind of ceremony. Or they might put you in the ground or Mm. they might wrap you up in bark or something. And they might put you in a cemetery and put put in a marble statue. Now, I had never heard about, you know, Helen has a real fear of statues. What does she think about statues? She thinks they're going to come and take her with them. Um, And that's sort of loosely based on Waverley Cemetery in Sydney. Have you ever been there? No. It's the most glorious cemetery and it looks out. It sort of slopes down to a cliff which is above the, the, that very blue sea you get around Sydney. And it's full of angels weeping and raising their arms and pulling veils over their heads. Mm. They're a very sinister bunch. Right. Well, in the opposite to sinister, what happens to William's brother Jack on the very day that William dies? Well... He's going to have to keep it short, Marion, but it's really it good. It's such a good oh. story. Well, he nearly drowns. Mm. And um, he's picked up by, because his boat 
packs up in various ways. He's at Eden on Twofold Bay, and um, he's he's brought to shore by some Americans who've been big game fishing. And as he walks up the hill to his house, he's joined by a man who tells him about being swallowed by a whale and spending some time in the belly of the whale. And his eyesight going funny and his skin going funny because of the digestive juices of the whale, of course. So that's an interesting story. That was a fascinating story. Oh, I love that story. We get all of these sort of ghostly reminders that somebody's died. And then uh, William's son's son, Ferdy, often remarks that that people are channeling William's words. What was so noticeable about William's words? Well, um, there were other people all the time. He was was an absolute ragbag of quotations. And Lynette, who who runs the fabulous um, kitchenware shop... Oh, the cult of kitchenware shop. (laughs) Oh, yes, yes, yes. And um, who before that was a caterer, is not particularly full of other people's words. But then when William dies, she seems to start... um, uh, uh, talking about or talking in you. other people's words, yeah. Now, uh, here's a few of William's quotes from Socrates: "An unexamined life is not worth living." Yeah. Another one: "What you don't know can't hurt you." And one from a John Wayne movie: "Never apologize, never <laughs> explain." <laughs> That's a great one, isn't it? I think a lot of women need to think about that because women go around saying, oh, I'm terribly sorry all the time. Um, And they should take a leaf out of John Wayne's book and stop doing it. Right. (laughs) Now, getting back to this mystical stuff, you know, things of ghosts, crystals, wolf tiles. You'll have to read the book to work out. Wolf tiles. And um, myths. There's a saying about, you know, when there's every death, there's a baby born. But I oh. didn't know about the death of the Greek gods with the birth of Christianity. That's very Tell interesting, Tell us a little bit. It? Yeah. Yes. Um, Milton has a poem about that, but it was quite a famous sort of thing that when Christ was born, all the old gods died. And there was this great huge groan went up saying, Great Pan is dead. But, of course, a lot of people think that he isn't. Yeah, that's <laughs> That true. he's still around, causing panic. So, of well, course, that's where the word panic comes from, um, what pan does to you. Uh, there's always a delight of a new life, a new birth, but a lot of your characters have real difficulty conceiving children. Mm. Well, I must say, that's that's a theme that goes through a lot of my books. Um, it was very much the case in Valley of Grace, and I suppose it's because I observe young women. You see, in my day, um, you got pregnant at the drop of a hat. You did it once in the back of a Morris Minor, and you got <laughs> pregnant, so people said. Um, these days, um, they try and try. But, of course, we were when we were doing that, we were 18, 19, 20. Now young women think that at 37 mm. they can get pregnant. And I've been to some shower teas, which 
a kind of, it's very nice for the baby tees, you know, it's very nice for the young woman who's pregnant, but she's probably got a whole stack of friends there who've all got tragic stories of trying IVF mm. so often that the doctor says we've got to stop, we can't do this anymore, or telling them that the state of their internal organs, if they get pregnant mm. again, it'll kill them. And so there's a whole lot of sad young not that young, of course, is the problem. Women trying to have babies. And, of course, it's always been the case all through history. Um, you know, babies where they weren't wanted, mm. like um, Tess of the D'Urbervilles and her baby that dies, who's called Sorrow, and they won't bury him in consecrated ground. And then imagine Henry VIII, how different English history would have been had his first wife had a number of lusty sons. It would have been quite, quite different. So babies not where you want them and babies where you don't want them have always muddled us up. And I think in the 60s we thought we had it sorted. We were okay. Well... We're not. No, and and there's quite a few baby deaths or child deaths through your oh, book too, which yes. is very, very sad. Yes. Um, My son said, how could you do oh, that, Mum? How could you kill that little girl like that? Yeah. I said, oh, it seemed the right thing at the time. Well, and Flavia's baby, I hope, oh, I hope, oh look, that was horrible. I hope that, That's terrible. I hope that's just out of your imagination. It really well, doesn't exist. You know, exist. I don't know. Would I make up something like that? Oh. I read it somewhere. Oh, Marion, the books you read. Look, <laughs> we're going to talk about death of a different type now. What is a cardinal's death? Oh, that's that's good fun. That, um, how can we put it on a family radio show? Um, that's gentlemen dying in the act. Remember Billy Snedden? I was surprised you put that in. Yeah, he was supposed to have done that. Nobody would say who the woman was, although they said they knew. But um, it it does occasionally happen that men die making love to their mistresses. And it's called the cardinal's death. (laughs) Does this imply that cardinals are always doing it? Well, Williams (laughs) says it possibly is another version of carnal death. And, of course, I mean, you presumably, if you... Um, committing adultery, it's a mortal sin that you've died in. And if you're a cardinal, you're going to come to a bad end because it's very hypocritical. Well, I think you enjoyed this whole idea so much. (laughs) There were were, uh, two lots of characters that had this conversation. Yes. Yes. There was William and his uh, mistress Barbara in in Australia. And then there was the wonderful Pepita. Yes. And grandnephew Ferdy, or William's yes. son Ferdy. She yes. was a lovely character. Oh, she's a fantastic character. She was based on my husband's great aunt, and um, who who was a, an elocution teacher in her 90s and had gentlemen she went out with and had, had a car. You know, she said one little old lady owner. When she got into her 90s and was too old to drive it, she gave it to a museum in Wellington. You can still see it. But it was new when she bought it and she was a girl in the 20s. Mm. So she she was just a delight. I'd like to know more about her. Um, anyway, a grand grandnephew Ferdy is a weekly visitor of hers in London because he's doing his PhD. But he comes back to Canberra, and when his father dies, and is going through his father's computer. Yes, 
well, mm. what does he find? Mm. Um, I don't have any personal experience. Of this, <laughs> I this is more of your wild imagination, I think, going on here, Marianne Halligan. I don't think so. No, you read about it in the paper, and especially people worry about their children if they accidentally get onto pornographic sites. They get in deeper and deeper and can't get out. They're apparently designed to entrap you and pull you in and you can't escape from them. It's a very sinister idea, Ooh, isn't it? It sure is. But anyway, is. that's what happens with um, when so, Ferdy gets pictures of Pan, it, it, Pan a very pre-arpic Pan, mm. in fact. And and he doesn't know whether this is something that happened accidentally or whether his father was looking at it. Mm. Which is very upsetting. You don't like to think of your parents looking at pornography. No, or even having sex. Hmm. Um, uh, here we are. Most of this book is set in Australia, and for a dry continent, there's a lot of water in this book. Yes, Oceans, storms, lakes, and yes. of course the pool yes. where William dies. Yes, yes. Even the first line of Goodbye, Sweetheart is, The story begins by water. Mm. Is it that death has ripple effects for those still living? That's a good idea. I think it does, certainly. Yes. Yes, yes. It keeps going on and on and on. You don't escape from it. <laughs> okay, we're doing one, one last quote from William, I think, and this is him quoting Swinburne. Time turns the old days to derision, our loves into corpses or wives. <laughs> That's pretty horrific, isn't it? It's terrible, isn't it? So um, we can see in the book, because you've written it, how death actually changes all his wives. Yes, yes, yes. I, I like the way that you wrote about Lynette. Now, she, uh -huh. she, had, the she had the shop. Yeah. She would lose her way of life, but not her livelihood. Yes, yes. And she now knew she was going to do what she wanted to do, not her duty. As Wordsworth would say, duty is the stern daughter of the voice of God. Isn't that fabulous? Yes. But I do think that's the case with a lot of women. When um, you, you are no longer obliged to be dutiful, you think, but what do I want to do? Do I know what I want to do? I've spent all my life being a good daughter, a good wife, a good mother. Um, now I just have to do what I want to do and I, I'm i not entirely sure that I know what that is. Mm. <laughs> it's a funny kind of situation. Well, they all knew what William's duty was. That was going from one pleasant thing to another, <laughs> from one loving woman to another. To another, I'll <laughs> say. Whereas unlike his brother Jack, who oh. fell in love with one beautiful woman and was faithful to her and when she died was interested in nobody else. Now, she had an interesting name and all your all your um, your characters had names and I thought, gee, I wish I knew a little bit more about Greek gods because I think yeah. you've given them names for a particular reason. Well, that's true. Yes, it's very interesting. You Also, when you write a book, you've got to get the names right. I remember when I was writing um, a book called The Golden Dress and I had a character in it called Elaine and she didn't work and I couldn't make her work and I thought, I think it's the name. And I changed her name to Molly 
And it worked beautifully. She was a Molly. She wasn't an Elaine. Not that there's anything wrong with the name Elaine. It's just that it wasn't right for my character. So you've got to kind of try out names and think what's going to fit. All right. Well, I think you chose them very well in this one. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. And I might even pick up Middlemarch by George Eliot and give it a read. That's a great novel. (laughs) I think that's one of the great novels of all time. Well, Marion Halligan, thank you very much for joining us here on um, Published or Not and telling us about your wonderful book, Goodbye, Sweetheart. Thanks, Jan. Thanks again, Helen. What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? 3CR. Community Radio. 855. What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? I am. What are you, what are you supposed to do? Well, finished with Helen. Now it's you and I, Anita. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good. Do you have friends from primary school? Now, it's a long time ago since I was there, and uh, I still remember some of them. What was it that brought you together? Now, in the title of Anita Ciliato Wheatley's book, there is a clue. Yes. Well, Anita, what is the title? Well, the title of the book is My Five Eye Friends. Eye Friends? Yes. Um, I, I guess, you know, lying in trend with what's happening at the moment with children who are fascinated with these uh, gadgets and, and um, iPods and iPads and iPhones and, and how their friendships are some way entwined, entwined between these technologies. So... That, that's where the title has come from, um, observing my own children and their friendships. And who's the narrator? Well, the book has uh, been written from the perspective of my son, Julian, and, and it is a real life story. So something based on, on how he has envisaged his life in primary school and his friendships. Uh, quoting from the book, I'm always that kid that sits in the front row of the class photo. What's his nickname? <laughs> Um, his nickname's Shorty. Um, <laughs> that's what he's called through the book. Does he mind? Um, no, he doesn't mind. Um, you know, he is, he's always been of a small stature and um, he, he sees this in some ways as an advantage um, and he finds ways to use this uh, to his advantage, um, you know, being good at sports and, um, you know, having friends that can support him and look after him. So, you know, he, he actually enjoys a title. Shorty made a list of his most enjoyable times at school (laughs) and uh, education certainly wasn't on it. No. (laughs) He was very much into sport, but what was it that he enjoyed most? Look, he, you know, he does talk about uh, school and I I remember this because I used to always ask him, how was your day at school? And he'd always talk about playtime and lunchtime and, and home time. But mainly he spoke about his friends and how he enjoyed catching up with his mates every day. These five mates, well, who were they? Tell yes. us about Riley, he was the leader of fashion and king of scooter riding and thrift shops. 
Yes. Um, well, Riley was the, was the cool kid. You know, he always had the best clothes on. Um, his dad was a tattoo artist and, you know, he was just one of those kids that everyone kind of followed. He'd set the trends and he did love thrift shops and, and, you know, that was the cool thing to do. And, you know, he loved sort of all those sort of gadgets that were in shops and you could buy them and then, you know, brag about them to your friends. <laughs> and then there was Andrew. Now, Andrew and Shorty, they shared the, the the same position in the family. They were both oldest yes, with a younger brother and sister. And, of course, they got blamed for everything. So they, <laughs> they were able to share that affinity. But Andrew's house had three entertainment areas. Yes. And he was always there to support Shorty. Yeah, Andrew is one of the characters, very loyal friend, um, and he often liked to spend time with Andrew just to have that quiet time or if he needed advice on on anything, whether it was homework or sport. And, um, yes, he did have a very large house and he loved going there after school and, and choosing should they go play PlayStation downstairs uh, or Wii upstairs. Yeah, so it was great. Now, another Julian, another uh, yes. Shorty's Julian and he's got a mate <laughs> called Julian, has the latest eye technology but he's willing to share it. But he's, he's, he's a big guy and would act as Shorty's bodyguard. Yes. Why would Shorty need a bodyguard? Well, I guess being short and and getting out on the fields and playing sport, often it it might get a little bit rough and and being the little one, he might have been a little bit easier to, you know, pick on or choose to bully. But uh, Julian, being a big sporty athletic type, was always there next to his side saying, you know, hang on a minute. I don't think this is the right thing to do. So he did have that. He'd just like to have that support with him. Liam, he was clever and creative and they really enjoyed jamming together. But what is their unique connection? Well, I think Julian or Shorty can be himself around Liam. You know, he's he's really that one true friend where... It, it doesn't. It doesn't matter how crazy or uh, the, the sorts of conversations that he can have. He's he's not shy around Liam. He can pre- present his real personality to Liam without feeling like he has to have barriers around what he can do and say. And with Thomas, he's gone off and done <laughs> weird things like uh, zoo insect keepers and um, making aftershave and. Thomas is keen on roof sitting. <laughs> yes, and again, this is a true story, but Thomas uh, enjoys being on roofs, whether it's at our, um, our own home or at the footy club or at the tennis club in his own home. Um, and he just enjoys looking out over the, the city or over the view to see what's happening. So it's quite a quirky character, really crazy and mm. fun character. So this is uh, Shorty sort of saying about the kids at school. There are sporty kids, happy kids, whinging kids, yapping kids, crazy kids, normal kids, cool kids and nerd kids. Nerd kids don't think the same way about stuff. They don't seem to laugh at our mischief. And there's quite a bit of mischief going on with Shorty. There is. I think um, as he progresses through primary school and advances into the higher years, the mischief seems to increase. Um, And often there's... you know, activities happening in class and they, and the boys might be trying to cause mischief with the teacher um, and, and sometimes the nerds don't really, they, they don't really appreciate that and don't understand and they're there to study and, mm. and they don't understand quite what's going on. But, he, yeah, he still enjoys their friendship as well. The thing about this group of friends and your book is that 
they all grew up with technology. They were in that I revolution. Yeah. What was that? Yeah, look, I think um, Julian or Shorty was born, he was a millennium baby. And I guess as he did start to get into primary school, technology boomed. You know, the, the DS became, you know, the iPod and then the iPod became the iPad. And they had all these means of using these uh, gadgets um, to text each other and send photos to each other and and have conversations, play games online together. So it was like a boom and it was something that they've become the leaders of technology because they often knew more about it than parents or even the teachers. The teachers would be asking the kids, oh, how do I use this? So it was a very important factor um, in their development. I, th- I thought it was interesting too that uh, where they knew that they wouldn't be able to get mobile phones because <laughs> mobile phones required plans and bills and everything. So they adapted their eye equipment and uh, used Skip and Skype and Instagram yes. and, and this type of eye technology. So they... they yeah. It, it was no wonder they were teaching the teachers. That's right. And because, you know, this was their ultimate goal to have a mobile phone um, in primary school. But they worked out a way to get it without having the, the plans. And, you know, they, they had it all in the tips of their fingers, um, all these gadgets and abilities to, to, you know, like I said, send photos and, and chat and, and do all those things outside of school. So not only were they chatting at school, as soon as they got home, they were still continuing their conversations and playing games. Now, Anita, why did you write this book about your, your, your son's friends? Okay, well, I guess um, I was fascinated with the technology aspect, but one of the other major reasons was the unbelievable friendships that have been formed, not only with the children, but with the parents of the children, and how we've all become a big family. And I just thought it's a wonderful story. And I think a lot of children and even parents may relate to that a group where they're all together and you spend time with the parents of, of um, your children and their, and their friends. And this is a really nice, positive story, uh, talking about how those community and, and friendship connections grow and are very important in today's society. The book finishes at the first day of high school for Shorty. He hopes he's going to be treated like an adult. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether education at high school is going to be any better for him. (laughs) But uh, you've got the characters. You've got fabulous characters. I hope you continue on the story of uh, Shorty in in the next part of his (laughs) journey. journey. The book's My Five Eye Friends. Anita, where can people get it? Yeah, look, um, this particular book, you can just email me um, at anitasw at gmail.com or if you type in My Five Eye Friends, there's a Facebook as well as a YouTube um, selection of YouTube videos as well that that can direct you about how to get the book. So I'm using a lot of technology in in relation to selling the book. (laughs) Did your son teach you? (laughs) He did. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you very much, Anita SW, for bringing My Five Eye Friends and teaching me about (laughs) a lot of eye technology. And prior to that, I had Marion Halligan speaking about Goodbye, Sweetheart, 